Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbele and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe July 16th, 2010. Biota Live is a continuation of the Biota Podcasts. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. And uh, we have a bit of news and notes. It's been about a month since we last recorded a Biota Live. We have Steve Grand on the line. Hello, Steve. Hey, Tom. Can you hear me? Oh, yes. Yes, very well. Hey. How's it going? Good, thank you. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. I've just gotten back from the Bay Area. Yeah, how were your talks? It was, uh, they were pretty good. They were pretty good. I put the first one in the Biota feed uh, just yesterday. Yeah, I I listened to part of it today. Oh, terrific. Terrific. And just just before I did the talks, uh, or just before I did the SRI talk, I spent an afternoon with Jeffrey Ventrella, which was a real luxury. Uh huh. Have you met Jeffrey? Uh, he briefly once, quite a long time ago, um, at a conference in Los Angeles somewhere. Oh, okay. Was it one of the AI yeah. conferences? Yeah, that's what it was. Um, at UCL or yeah, yeah, ninety-eight. That's, that's what it'll be. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, but we only met for a few minutes. Yes, I, th- I think that's probably the nature of some of those conferences. Is, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The only the only real uh, bit of news and notes actually relates to the Graysum groups. I had a, a chat with Adam Arimenko a couple of weeks ago uh, about what is happening with the Graysum chapters. Folks who are familiar with the Graysum blog will have noticed that it's been down um, pretty well since the start of this year. And um, I'm pleased to announce that Biota is going to be hosting the Graysum blog, or at least the historical account of the Graysum blog. And news for the Graysum chapters, I spoke at SRI at the first Bay Area A-Life uh, meetup, and I think the plan is that all the Graysum chapters will form uh, independent artificial life groups, which I'll continue to promote through Biota Live, but I think the uh, Graysum Central in Boston was just getting a little overwhelmed with the new chapters, um, so the plan is now to form independent grassroots artificial life groups and uh, take it from there. Well, Steve, uh, the the reason I had you on uh, this evening was to talk about Symergy. But as you've heard part of the talk at SRI, um, what was was your general sense? Did you get to the part about the artificial life community or how much did you listen to? Uh, No, no, I I listened to all the stuff about, or some of the stuff about uh, Noble 8, but uh, I didn't realise you had talked about the community. Yes, towards the end, I, I I got to that point, and in large part inspired by spending an afternoon with uh, Jeffrey Ventrella talking about okay. various aspects of the community, and certainly you're uh, providing inspiration to him currently. Uh, he has a, a vision with regards to Gene Paul in terms of releasing, uh, or I think, a good component, if not all of it, open source. Uh, and uh, yeah. He's certainly um, watching the developments of Symmetry with some interest. <laughs> well, that's funny because I'd probably be watching Gene with some interest yeah. for the same reason. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I, I thought that already already was open source. I thought he, uh, you, you'd started that together. Uh, we, we released another one of his projects called Melody Ball. And we talked a little ah. bit about Melody Ball uh, when we were in uh, Menlo Park just before the SRI talk. But uh, no, he hasn't actually released it open source yet. It's free to download. But I think um, certainly a few people have expressed interest about incorporating aspects of gene pool uh, in their various simulations. And we talked a bit about 
cross-platform development in terms of Windows, Mac and iPad, and iPad and Mac are actually different, or I guess could be considered different platforms. Um, mm-hmm. In particular, uh, how one kind of layers the languages, because obviously the iPad and the Mac now are um, Objective-C Cocoa interfaces, uh, and certainly if you programmed in C++. Although, interestingly enough, I was at Apple um, just before I met with Jeffrey. He picked me up from Apple. Actually, mm-hmm. I was talking to um, my uh, open source manager friend at Apple, and he was saying that a number of the mono, which is the C-sharp um, version on Linux, a number of the mono interfaces are also compatible with Objective-C. Uh, I'm not sure how they're actually doing that, but it may it may make um, uh, a Mac version of Symmetry uh, a little bit easier. Huh. Well, that would be good. I, I had a feeling mono was was available for iPad and an iPhone anyway, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. 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 And certainly, a, a mono version would be very, very much easier because you'd only have the uh, 3D stuff to yeah. to change, and that has to be changed anyway. Certainly. Well, yeah. they were very excited about the Unity uh, graphics engine, which I think appears visually very similar to what you were trying to do um, with well, XNA, I guess. It's, Mm-hmm. We'll go through point by point with regards to symmetry, but um, certainly I think there's potential for uh, all these kind of things to be translated through through similar X and A-like uh, interfaces. Yeah, um, funnily enough, I'm, I'm using Unity now for my new game. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and it's very nice, too. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm really impressed with it. Very good. In fact, I even parted with twelve hundred dollars to get the pro version. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I downloaded the free version uh, based on the recommendations of, uh, of my friend at Apple, and mm-hmm. uh, certainly, yes, was was very impressed. I'm not sure how um, things are going to fit together with Noble Eight, but the the big announcement with regards to Bob Mottram's changes, of course, another mutual friend of ours, oh, um, yes. is the Noble Eight web server, which I think will probably uh, make a, a uh, Unity-like interface relatively trivial in terms of the, the driving uh, of it through some XML interface. Um, uh-huh. It's wonderful to be working with Bob, actually. How how were you connected with Bob in the past? I have no idea. <laughs> I really can't remember. We got to we got to know each other via robotics rather than a life. Certainly. Um, and it was way back when I was building Lucy, or maybe when I'd finished building Lucy, Mark One. Right. But I honestly can't remember. But it was, we were both in England at the time, and I'm not, I don't think we've ever met in real life. Okay. Uh, just one of these email meetings, you know. Certainly. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't want to speak for Bob, but I don't get the impression he gets out of North Yorkshire very much, and he lives in a very beautiful part of the world. So. I don't know mm-hmm. why one would uh, why one would stay remote in that kind of environment. Do you know I I kind of I gave a bit of a rap with regards to his robotic vision stuff, but do you know much about that? Uh, I can't remember much about it. We used to have long long email discussions about vision and AI in general many many, many years ago. Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so we go we go back quite a way now, I guess. Yeah. eight something like that. Uh, but but only ever online, and, and now now we're both Facebook friends, so I kind of yeah. keep track of what's going on that way. Yeah. Did you get up to the section of the talk where I started detailing Bob's changes? No, no, I didn't. Oh gosh. Okay. Well, you've got some you've got some interesting listening to come because he's certainly uh, 
ripped apart the Noble 8 simulation and moved it in a number of quite exciting different directions, including the web server, but also this notion of 8book, which is really, uh, I guess, the Noble 8 social graph. So it's kind of social network for Noble Apes, but it also fits into the kind of narrative history. Some amazing stuff coming from Bob. I mean, he's just a phenomenal developer, and his ability to take... Uh, to take articles online and then uh, take the Noble 8 direct in, in the particular directions of the articles has been phenomenal. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, hats off to him. It's uh, wonderful to, to have him as a, a mutual friend, as, as is Jeffrey Ventrella. Like I said, we spent um, the better part of a day, actually, wandering through sections of Palo Alto and Menlo Park, talking <laughs> about various ideas and various mutual friends and experiences. And I think... Uh, Certainly the stuff Jeffrey's talking about in terms of self-publishing and mathematics and these kind of things, very much the, the inspiration of mathematics um, in terms of probably even creating a, a new generation of simulators that are interested in playing with mathematics as, as you and I and various others in the community have in the past. Um, and the idea of, of, of writing uh, in this regard, I, I talked last time he was on about his uh, prime number book, which he is completely reworking and apparently has doubled... Uh, the text and size. Uh, have you have you heard about that book at all? No, I haven't. No, it, no. it's to do with the spacing between uh, uh, the composite space and prime numbers and various underlying patterns that can make very interesting uh, simulation uh-huh. properties. And it actually reminds me very much of some of the early Noble Ape development, which I used for for similar spacing and I think sinusoidal rotation or something like that. But we have the <laughs> a long talk about Newtonian spatial mathematics and how it could impact the <laughs> understanding of numbers and various other things. So I think I'll probably send him my copy of the first uh, edition, which I've gone through quite heavily and written a lot of notes in the margins of. Um, so, yeah. I'm, I'm a mathematical numbskull. Well, I think uh, Jeffrey approaches mathematics. I mean, he's not a mathematician uh, either, but he approaches it very much as math as art. And I think that's really the way most of us embrace it for our our own particular simulations and certainly um, reading the the creatures' papers associated with the chemistry. There was a good deal of underlying mathematics as art through that stuff as well. I I feel much better if you call that mathematics. I can understand that. (laughs) (laughs) But but I had to struggle to to cope with matrix math and and data Mm. math. Mm. The 3D stuff. Certainly, certainly. But no, it was wonderful spending an afternoon with Jeffrey, and I think it really. Um, I mean, I know I know Dick Gordon uh, came through and visited you on a couple of occasions either mm-hmm. last year or earlier this year, and it's really wonderful to be able to actually spend um, a, a bit of time with people in the community and kind of rap about a wide variety of subjects. Um, so. Yeah, I've, I've been out of touch for too long. It was nice to talk to Dick. It was good. We had a good day together when he came down. Yes, yes. Well, like I said at the end of the SRI talk, that's the first public talk I've given in the past 10 years. So oh, wow. I certainly um, embrace the idea of the uh, the hermit. Although, having said that, it was wonderful to meet uh, a wide variety of people while I was in the Bay Area. Uh, and certainly the questions that came out at the end of the SRI talk, I mean, I think it's an hour and 15 minutes of talk and then 45 minutes worth of uh, hard questions, including how one actually survives and maintains artificial life simulations. So I think probably the trick was after three days of very limited uh, sleep, you could get uh, pretty honest answers out of me. 
<laughs> it was relatively late at night too. I think the the whole thing finished about ten thirty in the evening. So, um, oh wow, yes, yes. <laughs> but anyway, let's. Um, the reason I wanted to invite you on, aside from uh, just the ability to, to have a wonderful chat, was to talk a little bit about synergy. And I understand one of the one of the rules of synergy is that Steve Brown will not talk about synergy. Um, so <laughs> the rule is Steve Graham won't get his hands dirty with it anymore. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but certainly, I mean, since its release, and I sent it out on a, a few artificial life forums, including artificial life announce, which then kind of propagate in a wide variety of different directions. Um, there has been some interest in it, and um, as I understand, <laughs> you you will occasionally uh, talk about it. Um, I wanted to have the opportunity just to chat with you this evening. For folks who are actually coming to it, who are starting to tinker with it, who may have downloaded uh, the source code off the SourceForge uh, subversion repository, and who are mm-hmm. starting to look through the directories and starting to wonder, firstly, what more is there uh, to be done? What, what, what things are missing? But probably to start off with, just a kind of overview of the directory structure and you know the, the, oh. the bolts of it. <laughs> Do you expect me to remember? Yeah, I can, I can literally read the directory structure to you and then... Well, no, I, I, I can see the project. I have the project open in front of very me. Very good, very good. Uh, I can't actually compile it, unfortunately. Uh-huh. Um, so I've moved on, because it was written in Visual Studio 2005 and, okay. um, and with Managed DirectX 9 point whatever. Um, and I don't have either of those on this machine, so, but I can, can at least see the code. Okay. Ah, okay. Um, well, should I talk a little bit, give a bit of an overview of what the logic is, what the point of the, of the, the software is first? Terrific. Um, and then I'll probably, that will probably remind me how the actual code works. That sounds like <laughs> It's... Um, First of all, you have to forgive me if I if I call it symbiosis because I haven't got used to the idea of it being called synergy. Yes, unfortunately, yeah. I mean for folks listening in, there were so many uh, projects with the sim s i m spelling of symbiosis that I think it's yeah. it's probably something that's formed part of the collective uh, unconscious of some broader <laughs> open source community. So synergy, however, had not yet been taken, so I, I snapped up that one uh, and released yeah. it under synergy. It's a good name too. I like it. Very good. It's, it's been symbiosis for 30 years now, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of get used to it. Because I, I, the, the, the idea goes back to 1979. Would um, you want to talk a little bit about the history before you actually get into the project itself? Yeah, sure. It, it probably helps to get across what I was trying to achieve and, and then, therefore, why I've done it the way I've done it. Um, yeah, so I think you still back to 1979 when, when computers had 1K of memory and uh, no assembler, no compiler, and you did everything in hex. You'll remember those days. Certainly. Because um, um, I, I came to computing through electronics, and so you know, I was used to the idea of building circuits out of building blocks. And uh, so I came to biology the same way, and I thought of an organism as being a bunch of building block cell types plugged together into circuits, and it was a circuitry that defined the, the overall behavior of the system. So I had this vision uh, come to me like uh, in a dream kind of thing uh, back in 1979 of, of a, a, 
little grids, movable grids, imagine floating grids onto which cells could be fastened. And so the cells were connected to each other on, on several sides. <laughs> and, and Almost they like those breadboard soldering things. Yeah, that, that had... was the kind of thing, kind of thing I had in mind. There used to be a, a kid's electronics kit that had little cubes with magnets in, and, and uh, there was a transistor or a resistor or a capacitor in each cube. And you could plug them together on a on a board, so that was the kind of thing I had in mind. And so I was thinking that it would be cool to have um, various kinds of sensory cells that emit a signal uh, when something happens in the outside world, and various kinds of actuator cells that do something to the outside world when they receive a signal, and then various kinds of computational cell that could go in between. And and I was interested in trying to make find out uh, some basic building blocks of biology that we could use to build organisms like that. And I had this, this vision of these, these grids of cells floating around and eating each other and having sex with each other and so, you know, reproducing, giving birth to new ones um, uh, with uh, genetics and so on. But in 79, I couldn't actually code any of that because my computer didn't have any graphics and it was too small and I had to program in hex. So the nearest I got back then was um, probably 1980. Um, I built a, a plant simulator based on the same kind of grid model and um, used it to evolve carnivorous plants. So you plug together, or the genes are plugged together, um, some basic cell types like stinging cells and digestive cells and stuff. And then the software would fly some little flies across the screen and if they hit a stinging cell they'd fall and if they landed on a digestive cell the plant would gain energy and, and so the system evolved and so on. Which was fun and I learned a lot about evolution but that was about the limits of my programming ability back then. So, um, so the project went quiet for until nine, uh, hmm, 2001 uh, when the British Council came to me and asked for something that we could do to showcase British AI and so I revisited the, the project but in this, this time to do it in hardware and so I spent a few months um, building these cells in real life uh, with a little microcontroller in each each module and modules are plugged together and uh, you could build simple little creatures that could move around and, and sense their environment and stuff using these cells. And um, and that was really, really cool. I was, I'd love to finish that off sometime, but unfortunately my contact at the British Council left and the project kind of died a death. But the, the basic principle was, was in place then, which was that you could build creatures from these cells just by plugging them together. No grid, just they'd all have plugs and sockets on them. And uh, you plug the plugs into the sockets and build these structures, and it would be the uh, morphology that dictated the function. You know, form follows function. Um, and uh, but then casting around for something to do in about 2004, that's when I started writing the virtual version. Now that 3D was good enough, uh, and that's where we are now. That's the software. That's, that's now on SourceForge. So, uh, so the architecture of the game. I mean, from the, from the user's perspective, the, the 3D game, um, it's based underwater. 
because I figured that um, that underwater life is is pretty interesting and and particularly very simple underwater life plankton like stuff you know it's also beautifully yeah. three dimensional as well in terms of its movement space and you know yeah. ability to propel in various directions and these kinds of things yeah exactly and you you automatically get sort of four habitats you benthic creatures and creatures that float in the middle and creatures that float under the surface and creatures that swim on the surface so you get some, some various habitats without actually having to build any complexity into the environment and it's kind of graceful as well um, so I made the, um, the environment the sea and um, you there's a submarine a little yellow submarine that you drive <laughs> That you drive around in, and that's that's where you go and actually fly around and, and watch your creatures and um, track them and see how they behave and, and do all that kind of ecological side of things. Um, uh, but you actually build them in a there's a research vessel, a big ship, and uh, the ship's got a hole in the middle, and in the in that hole is a laboratory, and so the user's view is. Um, looking into a video screen into this hole um, and around the video screen are knobs and buttons and switches and things that you use to uh, control the design and then there's a kind of um, um, pin thing in the middle I've forgotten what I called it now but but, but that's that's the kind of that's the, the tool that you build your creature on you can rotate this around um, so you can look at your creature from various angles and stuff and you add cells uh, to the pit in until you build up your creature and then you let it go and it floats down through the bottom of the ship and hopefully does something useful um, and there's, there's a tractor beam so that you can get it back again for, for debugging it so uh, the creatures themselves are um, they're made from cells there's no kind of parent or anything there's, you just start with a root cell and then build onto it so um, each each cell has one plug and zero or more sockets and you can plug the plugs of one cell into the sockets of another cell so that means that the um, the creatures you build are essentially a tree structure you start with a, a central cell and then build outwards to form a tree and each cell is just like originally envisaged it, it's either a sensor or an actuator or some kind of computational unit that goes in between um, but I was kind of faced with a problem then because uh, we can build the morphology of the creature by plugging the cells into to make this tree structure and trees are obviously the best way to handle complex composites in 3D. Um, but in order to make the circuitry work, I needed more fluid kinds of circuit structure than just tree structures. You needed to be able to send signals past one cell and to the next the one cell along, if you, if you see what I mean, and things like that to make any kind of circuit. So I spent months trying various ways of doing this and and the system I eventually settled on um, is that, that um, each plug or socket is the entry or exit point for 
one or more channels, and the channel carries a chemical. And um, so there are input channels that go to the internal structure of the cell and, and drive uh, whatever inputs that cell might have. So um, if it's a muscle cell, say, that twitches, uh, when you supply a signal, the signal you supply is through one of these channels. But there might be other control channels that allow you to control how much the muscle reflects, what the limits of its movement are, and that kind of thing. And then there are output channels that come from sensors and the like um, that send signals in the other direction, and bypass channels that go in in as a plug and come out of one of the sockets. And so those are the way that you can send signals past one cell and into a, a, a cell further downstream. And then to define how these things wire up, you just specify which chemicals they carry. So if you've got, um, say, a light sensor with one output cell, well, one output channel that produces a signal according to how much light there is, and um, you connect it to a muscle cell that's got a uh, two input channels, one controlling the range of the muscle, one controlling the force, then if you make the um, the light sensor's output channel produce a red chemical and the muscle force input be a red chemical, then that specifies that that the uh, the output from the light sensor goes straight into the force input of the muscle um, rather than to the other channel. So. So you wire the thing up by changing the chemistry, by, by specifying which chemicals go through which channels, what their specificity is. And as far as I can see, that allows you, in, at least in principle, to wire up any arbitrary circuit, um, even though the, the physical structure of the creature is, is a tree. Does that make sense so far? Certainly, certainly. In fact, I'm reading the code as you're describing it, which... Uh which is adding more to, to what you're talking about, too. <laughs> I should be reading it as well. Then. Well, no, no, continue, continue. <laughs> so, um, so that's the basic structure. Um, uh, all cells are derived from uh, the same class. Um, and um, uh, the, the submarine and the ship and that kind of thing, they're also organisms. They're, they're also collections of cells. Um, and and the, the code is designed in such a way that you can add on new cell types um, after compilation. So you can just drop a DLL uh, into, into the folder and, and some graphics to go with it, and, um, and the new cell types will become available to the to the virtual world, so that was um, a kind of driving force behind the design of the code. This ability to drag and drop um, new things into the code. Luckily, C Sharp and .NET uh, make that really easy. Uh, so, when you look at the project structure of the of the thing, most of it comes in the Symbiosis project, which obviously defines most of the stuff. Um, but then there are other projects, each of which define uh, various cell types, and they're all derived from the same um, superclass, cell class. And um, so you can you can code up another of these projects after the, the, the system's been compiled and just 
send someone the DLL and they can drop it into their game and those cells will become available. Um, there was some fiddling about that had to be involved in terms of how these different DLLs can access uh, code in each other. Um, and so there are some, some um, interfaces declared that um, open up uh, some of the, the uh, stuff that's available in the main project to make it available to the to these DLLs, um, which may be a bit ugly. There may be better ways to do all that. But basically it works, and, and I was able to make a, a bunch of cell types and plug them together and get them to work and make some creatures that did things. Um, but then I gave up on the project. <laughs> and so, so it was waiting to be done. Um, in terms of the main core code, uh, is mostly new cell types. Well, as many cell types as possible. Um, I'm, I just did a few of the, the necessary ones for things like the cameras and uh, the submarine and, and that kind of thing, and some simple um, oscillator cells and uh, signal modifying cells and various kinds of sensors. But um, that, I kind of got to the fun bit, and then, then I actually stopped the project. And so the fun bit is left to go, which is thinking up interesting and ingenious new kinds of biology and coding them up as cell types. And in terms of in terms of reproduction, is there a possibility of creating um what's the terminology that you're using for these cell tree creatures? Is there a particular name for them? For the creatures themselves? <laughs> uh no, no. <laughs> okay. No, they're just organisms, and they come under class organism. <laughs> okay, so these these organisms, as they as they are released from the the mothership, and and left to swim around, is there potential for reproduction amongst them to create new classes of creatures and new uh, through through building new cells? Yep, there is um, the structure of the creature, so the the tree structure, the hierarchy, and the uh, allocation of chemicals um, is defined in XML and so each creature carries with it a genome and um, uh, I can't remember how far I got with sex actually right. uh, but but, um, but certainly you can, you can create a new creature from a genome and it will be a simple matter to do uh, the equivalent of, of cr crossing over to combine two genomes because they're just tree structures in XML uh, to make a new creature that, that's the offspring of both parents. And, and there's scope for all sorts of ingenuity when it comes to sex, because um, the, the creatures basically just squirt these XML files at each other to produce a new offspring, but um, somehow or other you've got to make sure the creatures can get together and uh, recognize their own species and uh, couple and mate. And then... Um, and all the codes in there for that, well, pretty much all of the codes in there for that, but it needs some cell types and some ingenuity in terms of biology for how you can create cell types that would enable uh, a creature to recognize its mate and, and navigate towards it and, and um, swap, swap DNA. And I guess methodologically, the, the question that many may pose is the distinction between the DLLs the XML and whether this could actually 
be replicated by, I guess, a large-scale scripting engine or something like that, where the DLL components are actually represented in some nutritious script, potentially Lua or, or Python or something like that. Um, I mean, yeah, a, I think that would be pretty easy to do. Um, the the, um, the interface, uh, basic class declarations for for cells is fairly straightforward. There's a relatively small number of functions that you have to overload, uh, you know, update functions and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so it doesn't take very much code, you know, maybe a dozen lines on an average cell to declare a cell type and and, uh, and put its, special, its specialized code in place. Now, I chose to do that with C-sharp because C-sharp can be compiled at runtime, and, and uh, it's a nice, easy language, and, and all the rest of the code is written in C sharp. But there's no reason why you shouldn't use Python or anything else. So I imagine it'd be quite easy to insert that and, and make cell types that could be declared and defined uh, at runtime. And don't even necessarily need DLLs. And in terms of the physics and the of the simulation, is there actually a water surface, or is it? Kind of infinite water in all directions. Uh, the, um, the the bottom of the ocean rises up to become mountains, uh, and that's what um, defines the edges of, of the sea. So, so the the landscape is actually a, a grid. The uh, in three D terms, it's it's a quad tree. Uh, so, working out which objects can possibly interact with each other and which ones appear on camera and so on is done by a quad tree. So. Um, so there's the the world is one rectangle which is made of four smaller rectangles made of four smaller rectangles made of four smaller rectangles. Yes. Um, uh, so so that's that's the extent of the world. But but um, I brought the the bottom of the ocean up above the surface at the edges um, just to delineate it. But you can't do anything on the land. I haven't got any physics in for above water. Um, behavior. The physics stuff is a pile of crap. Um, <laughs> uh, was, I didn't have physics, you know, the, the actual ready-made physics engine available at the time, so I rolled my own. And um, underwater stuff is a bit odd anyway. Certainly. Uh, plus, I had the, the biggest constraint in this game is there's a vast amount of computation going on because you, you know each creature might be made of anywhere between maybe 10 and 100 cells and you might have dozens or hundreds of creatures and they've all got to be executed all the time and they can't switch off when they're off camera um, so there's a lot of computation going on so I, I had to try and cheat as much as possible with the physics and yet still have physics that was um, real in the sense that if you designed a cell that flapped it would push the water in the right way and produce propulsion um, so so my my attempt at the physics engine is pretty pathetic um, and could do with a lot of work particularly collision detection is not good um, so, the, so that's an area of the code that could do with kind of gutting and and starting again and you could probably Use physics. I don't know how to pronounce that. You know, T H Y S X. Yes. The commercial physics engine. Yes. Um, you could probably use that now. Um, 
that's what Unity uses, and it, it seems to work pretty well. Certainly. In fact, that was the, the point I was going to make, that uh, if you're using something like Unity for the graphics, you would, you would get that for, for free in inverted commas. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, I think what, what interests me is the ability with new cells to also, if you had physics that included land and even potentially air, um, that could be almost like flying fish or these kind mm-hmm. of things that could then move into uh, you know, land creatures or, or birds or a wide variety of, uh, of other uh, possibilities. And certainly I, I have a sense of that looking through the code that really you started, um, as you say, because of the computational reasons, but increasingly uh, now these kind of things, be they games or simulations, are oftentimes run... Uh, over distributed networks as well, and the way that you've designed the spatial partitioning uh, could lend itself very easily to uh, multiple systems running multiple parts and kind of either exchanging uh, creatures or exchanging camera angles or sharing the processing in some way, um, which would be relatively easily done through um, spatial quantization or other other possible methods. Yeah. Yeah, you you could do it peer-to-peer probably. Certainly. So I think... from, from my perspective, looking through the code, it was the, the degree of potential for, uh, for external folk that have interests in this regard to come to a simulation which is you know, relatively, relatively mature, uh, also has obviously this rich game interface, uh, and, and take it in a wide variety of directions. As you, I mean, projecting into the future, in terms of coming back and seeing this in maybe a year or two years' time, what kind of features would you like to see added by the uh, the open source community? Huh. Um, well, aside from making the graphics work, because the Direct 3D managed Direct 3D is now defunct, uh, and getting the physics working, I think cell types. I mean, that's where the the interest comes in is in coming up with um, cell types that that um, are elegant. You know, you could, in principle, have thousands of different cell types, each of which does something very specialised, and it would be like um, an Airfix model. Do you have mm-hmm. Airfix models over here? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where there's only really one way to build it. Uh, but but what I was hoping for was something closer to Legos, mm-hmm. uh, where you've got a relatively small number of building blocks, but there are many ways to put them together to do interesting and ingenious things. So mm-hmm. so that's where the the elegance comes in, is in thinking up new cell types. Well, I'd love to see a good variety of those. But like you say, uh, being able to, to move above the surface of the water and, and onto land and into the air would be great too. Hmm. So in terms of people coming to this, I, I guess there's, there's been a relatively harsh distinction between uh, C-sharp based open source and, and non-C-sharp. And this was really my question with regards to uh, scripting and, and embracing uh, general ideas. I think certainly looking through the source code, it would be relatively easy to uh, port sections to a language of choice or even to a scripting uh, language. And I think um, looking at some of the stuff that's coming out in terms of uh, web server distinction to perhaps a second life client or these kind of things, there are a wide variety of ways this could be uh, rewritten. Because as, as you say, I think the ideas are relatively fundamental um, in terms of... Uh, as you say, the kind of uh, colour interface and, and, and transitions and the potential for these cells to be uh, 
developed to do uh, a variety of things. In terms of the cells that you have actually developed, can you can you go through them specifically? Cool. Okay, I can try. Incidentally, I'd, I'd, I'd certainly these days consider rewriting, if I was starting it again, I, I'd consider writing the whole thing in Unity um, because uh, it seems to be up to the task. One of the big problems... One of the big problems when I started, I mean, apart from the fact that there were no engines that were anything like that good, um, was the, the the odd thing about the creatures that you make in in, in Synergy compared to, say, a, a first-person shooter game is that you have to be able to plug anything into anything and make composites all the time. And so you need to be able to attach uh, the, the matrix hierarchies to... to um, control the position of everything and and, um, and that was one of the things I balked at when it came to trying to change it from um, managed direct 3D to, to uh, XNA because the XNA's object model is not um, as flexible as, as direct 3D was and it, it was very hard to find a way to make it so that you could plug things together to make composites but as far as I can tell in Unity you can do that Certainly. you can plug any object into any other object and it becomes a composite and, and um, it's all managed for you. Uh, and then, then, of course, you can script in C-sharp or uh, Boo or, or JavaScript. Um, okay, cell types. All right, let's uh, run through some things. Um, well, I'll go through the ones as, as I see them. Because <laughs> they're not necessarily in any sensible order. Yeah, in no particular order. <laughs> uh, bioluminescence. Yeah, that that was when I was starting to think about sex mm-hmm. and you know uh, attracting a mate. <laughs> yeah, identifying friend and foe is a pretty important thing for biology. And something I should have pointed out, I guess, is that what I want people to be able to do with this thing is first of all build very simple creatures uh, but then build creatures that can eat those creatures and then build other creatures that can eat those creatures and other creatures that can parasitize on the, some of the others and and so you can build up a complete ecosystem um, starting out with simple grazing creatures and, and moving up to smart creatures that can recognize their prey and trap it in some way and and so on. And and sexual reproduction would obviously come fairly well up the scale in terms of complexity because finding a mate, identifying a mate and navigating towards it and uh, and mating with it is quite a a task. So so bioluminescence was one of the things that um would make that possible. You can have cells that emit uh, pulses of light but they produce pulses of light in a very narrow band, um, wave band, and so there are com- comparable sensors that can pick up uh, that light and be tuned to a particular color light so the creatures can recognize each other. Uh, oh, sex organs. I did do sex organs. It's a couple of years since I looked at the code. So Very good. That was the plan for <laughs> this evening. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yes, yes. There's a sex a sex cell that can actually give birth uh, to the creature. So you supply it with uh, the name of the creature that uh, who who owns the other half of the DNA, and it constructs a new creature, and it sort of floats out of a hole in it. Um, is there a gestation period, or is it an immediate thing? 
Um, I think that's controlled by the chemistry. Okay. As far as I can see. So you send data into the cell to say, now's the time. Um, <laughs> input from plug. Males open labia, females glow. I have no <laughs> idea what that means. Very good. <laughs> I'm sure females glow and males sweat. Okay. <laughs> um, joints. Obviously, joints are pretty important, so that's, so that's a, an, an angular joint with a muscle <laughs> or a pair of muscles in it. And so you can tr control the the force and what class of joint it is. There, there are various. Each of these cells can come in subclasses. Uh, so there's a, a class joint, and that that one class can support uh, flex flex joints, contracting joints, expanding joints, and twisting joints. And and so the, the same piece of code just returns different values, behaves in different ways. Um, according to circumstances. Uh, yeah, so there's various kinds of muscles and joints. Spiny suckers. <laughs> A toothed mouth for sucking energy. I was going to ask about that, actually. Very good. <laughs> that, that was, uh, when I first thought of this, that was what I had in mind, was these creatures sort of float up against each other and um, suck energy out of each other, and so there'll be an energy economy. Um, and the one that got the most energy will obviously get enough energy to reproduce. Um, so this is a little mouth that can, when it touches up against something, can be closed and grab hold of that object uh, so creatures can fasten onto each other. As a jaw, the same sort of thing. Um, okay, that's those. Is there an idea uh, of scales or these kind of things? Well, the scale is a bit of a, a difficult thing for me because I call these things cells, but really they're more like organs. Certainly. Um, and because there's relatively small numbers of them in each creature and they're quite large and they're quite complex in their behaviours. Um, so you, you have to think of the creatures as being made out of a collection of organs. And in order to be able to see them, um, they end up being about as big as your submarine. So, so they're rather large organs. So, so scales a bit um, ambiguous. Well, I guess you could have a, a sheet of scales or something like that. Oh, sorry, that kind of scales. I'm sorry. I thought you meant. I thought you meant um, visual scale. Oh no, uh, sorry, hey. sorry. No, no. I mean, I mean, yeah. like scaly skin. Sorry. Mm. Yes, I wanted to have various kinds of, of protection. Um, I hadn't thought about scales. It's quite difficult uh, because it's not a fluid, flexible creature. It's a tree structure, and so it, it can articulate at the joints, but it doesn't. The body's not contained inside the skin. Certainly. Um, but you but you can have carapace cells. You know, you can have cells that are like pieces of chitin, like an insect, and, and strap those around the creature. And, and all of these things come with a cost. Uh, that, that's something I should have mentioned, that um, all these cells consume energy to do what they do, and the, the, the way to design the game would be to make sure that um, things that are really powerful require a heavier energy cost and so on. And obviously, um, uh, protecting your creature with, with uh, sheets of chitin uh, should cost you weight. Uh, it doesn't cost any energy to have um, protection, but, but it should make you heavy. And so then you've got to you know, either live on the bottom or uh, 
use more energy to keep yourself moving because uh, the whole point is to try to build an, an energy economy so that it takes ingenuity on the user's part to, to create creatures that are actually self-sustaining and can gain enough energy to reproduce. Um, so everything has to come at a cost. Um, you know, processor cells, the ones that go in between inputs and outputs, I've got various kinds of oscillators that produce sort of flapping motions. So if you attach an oscillator to a to a joint and a joint to a flipper, you'll get a bit of a creature that flaps. And you can vary the intensity and the speed of the oscillators by sending chemicals in through the channels. And so there are various oscillators that produce uh, flapping ramp, ramp generation, uh, sine waves, square waves, and pulses. Um, Signal modifiers. Oh, leaky integrators. I, I love leaky integrators. <laughs> <laughs> Everything I do has leaky integrators in. <laughs> so they, they accumulate values over time, but they um, they accumulate so the, their internal state rises the more stuff, you, more chemical you inject into them. Um, but they accumulate it linearly and they leak exponentially. So the fuller they get, the faster they leak chemical out again. And so they tend to stabilize a, a kind of moving average state. Okay. So you, you can use those for all sorts of all sorts of things. And that's an example of a really general purpose kind of cell. It's not at all obvious what you would do with one, but they turn out to be incredibly useful in all sorts of things in biology use leaky integration. Um, oh, computing surfaces. That was a, an interesting idea that I started to play with. Um, and it's, it got more and more powerful the more I thought of it. It's basically a t uh, just a, a graph. Um, so imagine a sheet, um, x, y sheet, where the z-axis is the, um, the height of the sheet at any point. So it's a surface. And um, you can put in value on one axis and another value on the other axis as chemicals, and you get back... Um, uh, a chemical based on the Z value from the surface. And it turns out you can use those for all sorts of things. Um, one of the key things I wanted to, to get as a cell type was a servo motor. The ability to put, put in a signal to say where you want an output to get to, uh, and it has a feedback signal to say where it currently is, um, and it works out what output to produce in order to um, bring the two into line with each other to end up. So, you, you know, if you attach it to a muscle and the muscle was moving a heavier um, weight, it would put in more force to get to the point where you told it to get to because of the heavier weight. Or if it hits an obstruction, it would uh, put more energy in. And you can get servo motor behavior out of these little graphs. Um, is it a two-dimensional um, survey, or is it a one-dimensional survey through how it's kind of... I'm seeing it almost like a, a cushion servo in terms of it's raising and lowering, or is it really a, a two-dimensional servo in terms of the um, ability to throw the graph in, in, in either dimension? Yeah, no, it, it, it's a one-dimensional servo in the sense that it has a single linear output, uh, but the mapping between, so, so the x-axis would be the uh, desired state of the servo, the y-axis would be the current state of the servo, oh, okay. and the z would tell you what 
output it was going to produce uh, to get from one to the other. Uh, so, so it's a, a semi-linear uh, single-axis servo. But, but by varying the numbers on these sheets, you can create thresholds and things that scale or add or invert or um, subtract uh, values. So you can do processing on the chemistry. Uh, you can even get logical functions and or an exclusive or. Um, and um, waveform generators that produce complex waveforms given a, a reciprocating wave as one of the inputs or, or two of the inputs. Um, and even random number generators. So, so that, that was quite exciting. I was quite uh, excited by the fact that this very simple cell type that's just a graph you send it to inputs and it gives you an output can be reconfigured genetically to uh, produce a wide range of different functions and I, I doubt if I've um, gone through all the possible functions there's probably a whole bunch of others that someone could think of just by yes. changing the shape of the surface yes uh, latches um, so you send in a signal and it gets stored so it's kind of memory so a, a lot of these um, computational cell types are, are modelled on the basic building blocks of electronics. Um, so the ability to modify one signal using another and produce amplification or switching is like a transistor. Well, that's pretty useful in biology too. And, um, and in digital electronics, there's a bunch of basic elements that are incredibly useful and get used all the time, one of which is the latch the ability to send in a one or naught and then latch it so that it stays there. So that's the, the rudiments of memory. Certainly. Uh, but, but interestingly, in in the uh, Synergy world, um, you can, a lot of this stuff, there's a kind of halfway house between analog electronics and digital electronics. Um, so a latch needn't necessarily record a one or a naught. It might record a naught point seven. Um, so there's a kind of kind of electronics that you could define using these cell types that doesn't exist in, in real electronics. It's sort of halfway between analog and digital. Uh, but more digital type things are monostable. So you um, put in a signal, it triggers an output and the output stays on for a given length of time and then turns off again. And there's all sorts of uses for a, a thing like that. You know, some sensor triggers it and then it produces some action that might last for a minute or two. Um, uh, inverters, that's a pretty straightforward thing. So they, they shouldn't be there, actually, because those surfaces can do inversion. Navigator cell. Now, this, this is where I'm starting to get a little more towards the ethics kit away from the Lego <laughs> kit. Because <laughs> a navigator cell sounds a little bit specialized and it is fairly specialized um let's see you you give it this it's got uh, four inputs one of um and, and two outputs the outputs are left and right motor signals and so they come out the two sides on sockets on the sides of the cell and you could attach muscles to them and maybe flippers or legs or whatever you wanted to propel the creature by and the task of the cell is to adjust the movements of these flapping objects, um, adjust the speed of them so that the creature turns in a particular direction. So uh, so the, the main input is the direction you want it to turn and it will change the um, intensity of the flapping 
on one side or the other. Um, but then you can also send in an intensity to say how hard it wants to flap, so how fast it will try to go. Oh, yeah, waveform. Yeah, so so without the waveform, you just produce a signal that was a differential on each side. So you uh, you could drive. You might have cells that produce puffs of water, like a, an octopus or a squid uses uh, to fly along with, you know, drive along with. And so you just want to produce a, a differential signal on the two sides, controlling how much water is being propelled out of each side. But if you wanted to make a creature that had uh, fins and flapped its way along and swam, then you'd put a waveform in here and, and the cell would modify the waveform uh, to to make the, the two flippers flap at different amounts. So that, that's quite a complex cell and I, I don't like that kind of thing. I mean, you know, the idea was to try and stay away from things like that. <laughs> but, it's, <laughs> but it's such a useful thing to, to do. And it would, you, you could, in principle, make it out of a bunch of other cells, comparators and, and multipliers and stuff. But it'd be so much trouble and use up so much computation for something that almost every creature needs to do that it was worth defining a single cell type for it. Um, and then on the sensory side, we've got um, an optical flow sensor that measures the relative movement of objects nearby so the creature can find out if it's moving or if something's moving near it and, and how fast. Um, speed sensor, so that's measuring its own movement. It's got little hairs that get swept back by the... All, all of these cells can have animations um, and you can control their animations along with the physiology. So in, in this case it has little hairs that stick out the sides and they flow backwards the faster the creature moves and then in the animation and, and then the physiology produces a signal that's proportional to speed. Uh, right, a passive light sensor, that's, that's detecting the bioluminescence that I started with. So you could use that for all sorts of things, allowing a creature to recognize a member of its own species or recognize its prey um, or detect the mood of another creature. Color-specific light sensors measures the amount of light of a given color reflected off other creatures. Sonar, obviously proximity detection. I was going to ask about that specifically, actually, because I think the potential for using multiple different kinds of sensors for different kinds of communication, and certainly to, to get uh, Dick Gordon on you, in terms of these these individual creatures working together to create broader super creatures. When you said latch initially, obviously there's, there's the electronic kind of latch, but is there also potential for um, interlocking uh, musculature or something like that to, to kind of create, I don't know, not necessarily ant colonies, but various other kinds of creatures where they have some interlocking for group collaboration or anything like that? Wow, um, not so far, but <laughs> any, yeah, it wouldn't be difficult to to add that kind of thing. I mean, um, in the in terms of physics, it's quite hard to to clutch hold of another object and and keep the two entrained, mm. uh, uh, especially if you want to do it quite realistically so they can slip apart and so on. Although, if, if you move to the physics engine, then that would be really quite easy because you could just attach the two, two colliders of the two cells that you want to join uh, with a joint 
temporarily and the joint has a, a breaking strain so it could break apart again so it's it's easier now than it was when I started writing this but yeah that would, that would be cool um, there must be all sorts of stuff you could add uh, vibration sensors because I was thinking you know a lot of these creatures are going to swim around but some of them might be might just sit on the bottom waiting for something to float over above them and then leap up and grab it and Certainly. sink back to the bottom and eat it and so on. <laughs> yeah. The great thing about underwater is he, he, there's nowhere more bizarre than under the ocean Certainly. in terms of creatures. Uh, well, that, I think that's about it for the... Oh, and paired sensors. Um, yeah, I, I set up a whole bunch of cell types where um, the cell had two two sensors instead of just the one. Um, so, you know, detect the level of light on both sides, so it's nice and easy to steer using that kind of thing without having to use two different cells and some kind of comparator and plug together whole circuits just to do a simple task. But I think that's about it for, for the cell types that I'd actually put in, but I hadn't spent very long doing that because it doesn't take... You know, you, you could knock up a new cell type in a matter of minutes, um, certainly, certainly. So, ideas of genetic consumption, for example. I mean, this is um, something that seems to be periodically coming through uh, other artificial life simulations. Uh, I guess the ideas of reproduction are almost like genetic consumption, but there may be some benefit almost to have, uh, I guess, virus cells or these kind of things, which uh, may be very simple, but may have means of either uh, genetic manipulation or genetic consumption of, uh, of what they <laughs> attack. Um, so that would think, be interesting. Yeah, there's, there's potentials in those areas too. And also, as you described, uh, a lot of these cells have been have very much derived, well, certainly the movement and the, the speed and these kind of things for an aqueous medium, but I can see as they left the aqueous medium, they could become things like fur and uh, and a wide variety of other um, possibilities. So I guess really what we're doing here is putting this out to um, initially the artificial life community, but also the broader open source community um, in terms of folks listening in who are interested in, in contributing and starting from these uh, building blocks even as described. I mean, I can, I can imagine people looking at the code and... Uh, deriving simulations from this because the building blocks as you've described them as, uh, are relatively simple uh, but certainly in combination can make quite uh, powerful and interesting things. In terms of um, in terms of other simulations I mean obviously Jeffrey Ventrella's work uh, Gene we we started talking about this um, but certainly there are, there are components of Jeffrey Ventrella's uh, Gene Paul in, in what you've described but there's also potential to hybridise which I think would be really interesting uh, in terms of uh, when GenePool goes open source as well, um, the potential. I, my understanding is the GenePool that Jeffrey has been working with recently is three-dimensional. It's not just the traditional two-dimensional GenePool, so that, uh -huh. would, uh, that would provide some interesting things. And if there's a shared, uh, a shared overlap, particularly with regards to the base cells, I think yours have a lot more... Uh, internal communication, perhaps, although I've never seen the source code to GenePool, so I, I don't know that specifically, but certainly what you're describing uh, seems to give a lot more um, internal communication, internal processing uh, potential. So there could be some interesting hybrids that come out of this as well. Hmm, yeah. It's, um, and and uh, technology is moving on so quickly. It would be nice to start again, really, with a thing like this. Um, 
now now we explored the idea. To, um, scale is, is is the big problem with all of these things. You know, there's no limit to what you could build out of cells if you can have a hundred thousand cells. Um, but um, we just can't compute that much yet, uh, and and render it in 3D and animate it and stuff. So so I went for this sort of larger organ-sized building blocks, which causes is a limiting thing. You, know, you you mentioned fur, but it it would be difficult to make fur as a specific thing. You know, you could have cell types that were sort of little carapaces with fur on or something like that. Um but, but these creatures tend to be very plankton like um because they're basically tree structures uh, mm-hmm. made from a relatively small numbers of cells. They don't have a a body. Um Oh, you, you mentioned viruses. It, it's perfectly possible to make single-celled creatures, of course. Um, an organism can contain one cell, and that cell can have as much code in it as you like, and you know, do the whole propulsion and sensing and intelligence bit all by itself. So that, that makes it nice and easy to make um, cannon fodder, you know, um, simple little creatures uh, that provide the food sources for... Um, for the larger, more complex composite creatures. So I was planning on putting very simple plankton-like things that just sort of swim towards the light and or swim around at random in the system. You could definitely do viruses and bacteria and uh, that kind of thing. Certainly, certainly. You, men- you mentioned scale and weight, and if you had surface tension as well, there would be potential for almost insect-like creatures that could skate along the, the surface of the fluid and, and dive into it and all these kind of uh, wonderful uh, physics modelling uh, yeah. possibilities too. That would be neat, yeah. yeah each cell currently has uh, a mass and a buoyancy um, plus whatever energy costs. Uh, I don't think it has any... I'm not sure whether it has any other basic properties. There must be others. Oh, and, and a, a sort of water resistance value. Certainly. Well, Steve, I think you've, you've given a lot of food for thought and, and probably an, enough examples for folks who are listening in who have an interest in open source development and interest in artificial life to uh, to get involved. And just to give the URL for folks who are interested, it is currently hosted on SourceForge, so sourceforge.net slash project slash Symergy, S-I-M-E-R-G-Y is the place to, to start. And I'm looking actually for um, for project administrators as well. I'm currently um, the, um, I don't know, the, the introductory administrator, the, um, the person to contact initially, but I think there are a sufficient number of folks in the community and certainly even through the Biotech Conversations mailing list, uh, Peter Newman and one other fellow whose name escapes me um, expressed an interest enough to be uh, administrators of the project as well. So certainly it's it's in no way a walled garden that's looking for uh, as many folks who want to contribute and even uh, administer it early on. Steve, I, I don't necessarily want to pry this out of you, but I, I know you are working on both a software and a book project currently. Um, if you don't want to go into details, are the two interconnected or are they are they divergent works? Uh, they're pretty divergent, yeah. Uh, I'm kind of stuck on the book. Okay. <laughs> the book is about it's called Spirit, and I want to talk about um, uh, structure and how 
structure has been lost because of physics. So physics is rather obsessed with uh, variables like mass and matter and so on, and um, has, has minimized the way things are put together, very much like the, the, the symmetry thing. It's not the cells that make the creatures, it's the, the circuits that make the creatures. And I think a lot of our understanding of science and people's antipathy towards science comes from the fact that structure has been kind of shut out of the equations. Right. So, but this so, isn't so, the Kaufman so, argument. This isn't the argument that the, the element outside of the, the physics is, you know, what we may agree with religious people as the soul, this is something quite different, isn't it? Well, I want to try and relate the concept of, of spirit and, uh, to the idea of structure and, and maybe suggest that, that some of the things that have hitherto been assumed to be dualistic require magic from outside the universe. Um, we're really only ever could, um, the structure of things and, and that we... Uh, we used to have an innate respect for the structure of things that's kind of got lost. Um, it goes back to the Greeks and stuff, but that's, that's all a bit complicated. <laughs> and I'm, uh, as I say, I'm stuck on, on some of the physics at the moment, so that's not really going anywhere. But the game is, is um, much more like my Creatures game that I wrote 18 years ago now, when I started Creatures. Yeah. <laughs> We're all getting much older, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but on, on, sadly, that's true. On the other hand, computers are getting faster and faster. So well, to a certain extent. I mean, the thing, the thing that my Bay Area trip reinforced was that actually, certainly computers aren't getting faster at the rate that they used to get faster. And what seems to be driving contemporary computing is things like Unity, It's uh, mm -hmm. which doesn't actually require... Uh, you know, it doubles every 18 months in terms of speed, but is actually to do with how these things um, interact. And certainly the movement towards uh, mobile technology, uh, as I guess it's our group, um, seems to lend itself to uh, questions of interface, actually. This is the point that I made to uh, Jeffrey in particular, is don't just think about, uh, you know, the, the tradition of, screens and mice and keyboards as we have previously. This is really an opportunity for uh, people such as yourself and Jeffrey who have a, a very different background in terms of interaction to start exploring what multiple fingers do. I actually, um, mm -hmm. I haven't played with an iPad until I was in uh, Palo Alto with Jeffrey, picked up my first iPad and started moving all my fingers on it <laughs> as much as possible. I have an iPad version of Noble Ape I'm working on currently trying to oh, get wow. a sense of what this interface actually means in a in a productive sense because I think it's very different to a screen and a mouse and the way you can touch it with you know multiple fingers and move around it with um, you know different kinds of experiences particularly also the tilting I told I mentioned that to Jeffrey <laughs> particularly with these 3d aqueous environments that if you rotate the device and move the device around like you're looking into the environment you can actually update for those kind of effects too so <laughs> And all the creatures float up to one side of the screen. <laughs> well, no, the, the idea that you're actually looking through a window into an environment which is not in the physical world, but um, mm -hmm. you, you're yeah. describing. And it's certainly, I mean, in the late 90s when I used to see VR installations, they were demonstrating these kind of things as, you know, multi-thousand dollar uh, 
devices which typically had um, very early LCD screens with strange rotating musculature that enabled it to translate into some very shakily rendered graphics. And the beauty with regards to the iPad um, in particular and these kind of devices is that they have actually been optimised for this fluid kind of movement and the transition of the graphics. So I think um, I think they all give uh, different interfaces and certainly um, my experience at Apple and Intel was that they were both companies now that would like to be thought of in the kind of cell phone mobile domain, although high-performance um, high computing is still an interest that, that Apple appears, um, perhaps to follow Ericsson's line of both providing the phones and also the backplanes that uh, translate the phone data, because, of course, that's another important point to all of this. But um, uh -huh. like I was saying, I think the, the ideas of interface that probably people such as yourself have been dreaming about uh, as you describe in the late 70s, the dream idea of the circuit board, well, the ideas of interface now um, in terms of general movement and not necessarily processing, but just, as you say, the complexity and detail that one can get into now lends itself to a wide variety of new artificial life simulations. Yeah, I think it's, this is a good time uh, for that kind of thing. I, I agree. Uh, these new interfaces are, are very intuitive and touchy-feely and... Uh, just require a different kind of psychology to, to the very IBM-ish strict uh, world of keyboards and mice. And there's a lot of scope for for new ways of interacting, particularly with artificial biology, when <laughs> when you can stroke things and cuddle things. And <laughs> yes, yes. Interact with them differently. So I don't want to I don't want to probe too much if you don't want to answer any specific questions, but. In the fact that this new game is based in Unity, does that mean that you are intending to deliver it on multiple platforms? Uh, yes, well, um, just by virtue of the fact that I can. Terrific. <laughs> Bless them. <laughs> it's, yeah, because it will run on Linux and um, Mac and PC, and if I paid some more money on iPhone and iPad... And, Android um, and, and what have you. And, yeah, so so that's pretty impressive to be able to, to produce a complex 3D sim and uh, have it that portable, I'm, I'm pretty impressed by that. But right at the moment, I'm just enjoying the, the the sheer pleasure of being able to have metallic reflected surfaces and deferred rendering and light mapping and stuff like that just by clicking checkboxes <laughs> <laughs> instead of writing hundreds of thousands of lines of code. <laughs> it's a very nice system. I'm, I'm really impressed with Unity. I've looked at lots of other game engines in the past, and most of them are half-written full of bugs, badly documented, and, and you can't rely on them staying around for very long. But yes. Yeah, I think the metaphor of, of the best of open source and proprietary that things like Unity are, are now providing seems to be very strong. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> of course, here's me writing a commercial game, but I need some money. <laughs> certainly, certainly. Well, Steve, it's, it's unfortunately, unfortunately, we don't charge for BioLife and we don't pay the guests to come on BioLife, but you certainly <laughs> give inspiration when you come on. So I, I, you've only been on once before, I think, aside from the, the three interviews that I did. It, I feel because we're in almost constant communication that you've been on more frequently than that. But for the <laughs> listeners, um, certainly your, your last appearance was, was inspirational for a number, and I'm sure this uh, will also generate a, a lot of discussion. So thank you very much for the opportunity to chat this evening. Hey, you're welcome, Tom. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, we'll need to have you back on, perhaps even with Bob Mottram, to talk about some of the interlinking with robotics and A-Life. Do you still have 
interest in the robotics community? Is this something that you oh, feel? Yes, I'm still very interested. I mean, I had to stop building my robot. I was building a humanoid up until about a year ago, and I had to stop that. But I, my 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 apartment here is stuffed full of robots. Wonderful. <laughs> I'm still just as interested as ever. So that would be cool. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you, Steve, and thanks for folks for listening in. I'm not sure when the next Bio Live will be. I had promised one with regards to language, and as people process some of the talk, uh, some of the SRI talk uh, a few evenings ago, uh, you'll get the sense that language is another thing that is coming through the artificial life community currently and certainly changing the way uh, people people think about these kinds of simulations in a very non-visual and slightly more I don't know, maybe um, social science or sense. And Steve, if you, if you do get the, to the end of my SRI talk, I'd be really interested in, in your thoughts on the whole thing, particularly with regards to the kind of historical aspects of artificial life and how we translate that to a, a very modern world, although you seem to be doing this in your own, uh, in your own <laughs> thinking, writing and programming currently. Well, that reminds me, I'm supposed to be writing a chapter on the history of artificial life. Is that for Britannica or is that for something else? Uh, no, that's for one of Dick's ventures. Oh, okay. Gosh. <laughs> oh, so you're writing in one of his, uh, one of his, is it the Origin of Design one? Yeah, that's the one. You're involved in that as well, aren't you? Yes, yeah, I've just finished yeah. a chapter for the last Dick Gordon book and apparently there's still another EvoGrid chapter due and potentially uh-huh. another chapter due and then yes I'm I'm writing on the um the origin of the word design and a wide variety of disciplines and how we can learn from that. So uh-huh. I'm going to get very Wittgensteinian before it ends. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway Steve, it's wonderful chatting with you like I've said and yeah please don't be a stranger. Please feel free to, to drop in on, on random calls and also <laughs> if we can organise something more more formal in the future to get you and, and maybe Bob Bottrum and other roboticists together to talk about uh, linkings of hard and soft artificial life. That'd be wonderful. That, that would be fun. Look forward to talking to you soon. Good night. Bye, Tom. <laughs>